Catherine Miller is the author of At the Table, The Chef's Guide to Advocacy. She's a trainer and strategist. She previously served as the VP of Impact at the James Beard Foundation, where she worked with leaders in the food system to create new and innovative programs to help address gender equity, sustainability, food waste, and child nutrition. She's a current distinguished fellow at GWU's School of Media and Public Affairs and is a professional alum of the LA Times, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and the UN Foundation. Catherine, welcome to the show. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. So I'm so excited for this interview. You just came out with your first book, The Chef's Guide to Advocacy. Talk to us about how that happened. At the table, The Chef's Guide to Advocacy is really the culmination of about 10 years of work. I have been working first as a consultant and then as a, the first vice president of impact with the James Beard Foundation. And I have a three-decade career working with advocates and training and communications. And I started working with chefs in 2012. And so this book, is really bringing together my experiences as a trainer and communicator, the chef's stories about how they get involved, and then also some tips and tools for anybody else, right? The audience is really chefs and culinary professionals, but my hope is that the framework that I developed to help people become more effective communicators and more effective policy advocates transcends the food space. Tell me a little bit about what the experience of training chefs was like. <laughs> well, training chefs is really interesting, right? Like we think about kitchens are these places they're like filled with hot oil and yelling people and sharp knives and super dynamic and dangerous. And so when I was first approached by the James Beard Foundation to develop this training for chefs, I thought that's insane. They're not going to be effective translators on Capitol Hill or in policy things. What I found, though, is the most dedicated, focused, thoughtful, and effective storytellers that, frankly, I've probably ever worked with throughout the entire course of my career. They deal with the products every day. They solve crises every day, several times a day. They translate products to the plate for the consumer to make us all believe and appreciate how delicious something is. They create trends and they have vast networks, whether they're their employees, their fans, their distributors to pull from. And so I love working with chefs. I just think they're the most thoughtful and effective storytellers I've worked with in a, in a really long time. It is also a little like herding cats. Kitchens are incredibly dynamic, incredibly active. Restaurants are complete stress-filled environments. And so getting them to focus and getting them to hone their story in a way that was really effective and compelling was part of the challenge. But every chef likes a good mise en place. So we created a mise en place for advocacy for them. That's amazing. I have a friend, Peter Levine, who's a chef out in Seattle. And yep. whenever I was with him and whenever I'm with him, I always feel like he's very much like a campaign manager because he was always <laughs> looking for staff and trying to figure out problems he was solving. And so I've always felt this kinship with chefs around how they have similar skills of campaign managers of trying to solve these problems and figure out what the next thing and what is going on. And frankly, yep. also as an entrepreneur, the work 
is very entrepreneurial of what they're doing. So I, I definitely see that. But I also think if you ever are in a room with 10 different organizers, they all have 10 different shiny balls that they're trying to figure out and go after. And so getting that focus seems to be a challenge for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I love the fact that you saw that you see that kinship with him because, you know, that was a penny that dropped for me when I started working with chefs. So my heritage is in democratic political campaigns and political organizing, opposition research, communications. And I always used to joke that I wouldn't ever hire anybody who hadn't worked on a political campaign because I needed them to understand the passion and the direction and the coordination that it took. And then I met chefs. And now I'm like, I won't ever hire anybody who hasn't worked on a political campaign and or in a restaurant because the synergies are so you will make fast and furious friends, right? You will deal with a million crises. You are focused on an end goal for a campaign or that goal may be six months down the line or a year down the line for a chef in a restaurant. That goal is every single day. Your goal is to turn off the lights to your restaurant, making sure that everybody is happy, well-fed and satisfied, right? Then there is, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit, right? Like the chef community is really willing to look around and see like, what are the tools they need? And if you don't see it, how do you make it? And they're also really used to doing these things on a budget. The budgets are the margins, the business margins in restaurants are incredibly narrow. And so they're always thinking about the creative ways that they can do things. So I love that you see that kinship because it's the thing that made me feel most at home within the chef and restaurant community. I think the other thing that makes me feel super at home is the passion in which they bring to the issues. So, you know, over the last decade or so, I worked with chefs on everything from, you know, reducing childhood hunger to seafood sustainability to gender equity to wage laws. And they bring a informed passion to that as business owners and entrepreneurs. They understand the real life impacts of it. And they also work with people across a diverse set of communities and so they know how to talk about it. It's really lovely, but it's very similar. That passion is very similar to what we see in campaigning. Is that breadth of issues that they were working on, they're working on a whole lot of different issues and they're coming across and engaging and connecting with people across socioeconomic spectrums. And so talk to me a little bit more about then if you're training folks and they're taking that mise en place, that toolbox of training with them, how then the kind of ways that they applied it, how were they applying it? Let's dig in a little deeper on that because like folks who listen to this podcast are very much deep into the how are they going to do that themselves. So that'd be super helpful. The mise en place for chefs are actually is actually the mise en place or what is in place for everyone if you want to become effective policy advocate, right? We all have friends and networks. We all have platforms and communities that we reach. We all have the day-to-day -day interactions or belief about an issue that we care about, right? We all have sort of an emotional attachment to the things that we want to support that is there for all of us. I think one of the things that we I recognized very early on with the chef community is that they're not monolithic. They're not a voting block that all moves in the same direction. They're a loose consortium of small business owners across the country. One of the largest community of small business owners across the country. We're talking about nearly 11 million employees. We're talking about nearly a trillion dollars in purchasing power. We're talking about a physical presence on nearly every corner of our communities, right? So you think about the place that you love in your neighborhood. There's another one that exists in my neighborhood, right? So that coming up with a frame that each one of them could use 
to advance the issue that was most personal to them, right? The thing that they cared most about, because I think that's the other thing that we often think about in developing advocacy campaigns is when I first started working in developing advocacy campaigns in the early 2000s, you know, there was a big move to like find the celebrity, right? Get the David Beckham or the Lady Gaga. And what you realize very early on is just because someone has presence doesn't mean they have reach, right? And so really figuring out how you effectively reach and mobilize your supporters, that was a big piece. And chefs have that. So like that advocacy frame that we developed they had to be able to take the issue that they cared the most about, that they were going to be the most passionate about, that they were then going to be able to effectively reach their different networks with, was almost issue agnostic. So I developed a frame, and Alex Fisher, who is a Democratic political operative, like kind of helped me refine it, but it was it's called A is for advocacy, right? It's pretty basic. So when we think about advocacy, we think about that frame and everybody can remember it moving forward. So the A is for your audience, for your ask, for the argument that you make, right? The passion that you bring to the actions, to your allies. And even in this world, you know, it sort of morphed a little, but the idea of the article or the visual piece of representation around organizing. And so that's issue agnostic. You can run that exercise whether you care about sustainable seafood, whether you care about hunger, whether you care about regenerative agriculture. And that is the thing that most people say sticks with them, right? When I talk to a chef now about their own advocacy, they're like, no, the first thing I ever ask people is, well, who's our audience? And what are we asking them to do? It's also alliteration works. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And having those tools that people can easily apply makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how you saw folks then applying it to issues? And if you have like a favorite story of how someone applied that to issues, because to me, that's the the best part of being a trainer is you give folks this toolbox and then it's like, what do they do with it? Yeah, no, I'm super excited. One of my favorite parts about the book was the ability to tell the stories of folks that have put the training and the framework to work. So I'm super excited about sharing the story of Patrick Mulvaney in California, who is a chef. He's a Michelin-recognized, James Beard-recognized chef. He has a thing called Mulvaney's B&L after the building and loan in It's a Wonderful Life. It's probably the most poignant and my most favorite anecdote in the book, which is there was a period of time in Sacramento where they had a number of chefs deaths by suicides. He had a chef that had worked for him, a guy named Noah, and Noah's death by suicide happened very near and around the same time as Anthony Bourdain's. This is a crisis across the restaurant community. People who work in restaurants have among the highest rates of suicide, mental illness, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, right? It's an incredibly stressful environment. It also attracts sort of folks that are, you know, a different way of thinking about the universe, right? Patrick was very moved to the point of despondence by Noah's death and other deaths that had happened within the community and started looking around and saying, how can I do something about this? And so using this sort of frame of AS advocacy, he started working with Representative Doris Matsui on mental health, the inclusion of mental health coverage for hourly and wage workers within federal policy. He started working with Kaiser Permanente in California on a training program to be funded by the state of California for restaurant and hospitality workers, right? 
And at every step of the way, he had to figure out like, okay, who is my audience? What is exactly that I'm asking them to do? Why should they care? And I think the most important thing about the why they should care, right, is Noah's death and the death of all of these people by suicide, the impact of Anthony Bourdain's suicide on the industry as a person, we just think you should care about this, right? Like you should care. And people have a lot of things to care about. And Noah's death was only personal to the community of people that knew Noah. And so Patrick had to learn to tell that story in a way that really resonated with Representative Matsui, right? Really struck home with the Kaiser Permanente or with the governor's office. And that meant that he had to figure out different ways to tell the same story. And he also had to work to create the conditions by which not only were they touched by the story, but they were motivated to make the change that he wanted. It is one of my favorite parts of this work, which is that they they have taken that frame and they learned it and they've applied it to things that, you know, we often think about food issues as like the stuff on the plate. And in reality, you know, food is so central to all of our lives and touches so many pieces of it. The fact that Noah's death could motivate an entire community to change laws is really profound and that Patrick found some way to do that by utilizing a pretty standard frame of advocacy. It gave him the tool he needed to make that case in a way that wasn't just based in emotion, but was based in motivation. To me, what's what's great is showing and teaching folks to then what are those action steps, right? Not enough just to tell the story, but then how can there be an outcome attributed to what is a very hard emotional story? And that's the power of advocacy and being able to teach that framework and then engage people to create an outcome that can can be so important and engaging. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, yeah. And how's yeah. real life beyond the culinary industry, right? So Representative Matsui didn't write legislation that was specific to restaurant workers, right? It's specific to any casual wage, hourly wage worker. We look at that gap in our society and how we treat people. And so on a lighter note, one of my other favorite anecdotes is Renee Erickson. So she's a chef out of Seattle. She owns a large restaurant group there. And she's incredibly passionate about sustainable seafood and the livelihoods attached to, you know, specifically in the Pacific Northwest. So we brought her to Capitol Hill so she could talk about the impact that salmon fishing was having on the communities. And we were working at the time with a typical lobby group here in Washington. The lobbyists in food and the advocates, the professional advocates on Capitol Hill, don't know what to do with chefs. I always tell people, if, you, if you're bringing a chef to Capitol Hill, make sure you call the office and ask for the scheduler directly and say, hey, we have Renee Erickson coming into your, to your office because the office knows who they are. And we often think, oh, it's so hard. We're going to have to get a meeting with our LA or we're not going to get a member meeting. And so this particular group and this particular set of issues, they didn't get the meeting right for Renee because they didn't approach it the right way. So we're walking her through the underground of the US Senate by the you know train. And all of a sudden there's Senator Cantwell, there's Senator Maria Cantwell. And she looks over and she's like, Renee, what the hell are you doing here? And Renee's like, I was here and I was going to your office to meet with this person. And she's like, why are you meeting with me? 
And the two of them held an impromptu meeting in the basement of the Senate around Magnus and Stevens and the Fisheries Act. I tell that story because it's, it's one, it's my favorite story because it's like, it illustrates the idea that these chefs are also uniquely positioned because people come into their restaurant all the time. So Maria's office calls, Senator Campbell's office calls all the time and says, hey, I need a reservation or, hey, we're bringing in folks. Can we have this private space so we can have this conversation, right? Or I work for Senator Cantwell. Can I come? Like, they, they all know them because they're in their community. And they were able to have this, like, impromptu meeting. And Renee also said about that meeting that, like, there was a moment where she, like, had to remember, like, I, like, I have to make my case, right? Like, this, this is that 30-second meeting you were telling me about, yeah. right? And so moved into that frame of, like, yes, I'm here to talk to you about Magnus and Stevens. I'm here to talk about the preservation of, like, the Pacific Northwest fishing, and so I also love that. It's a little lighter. <laughs> the power of relationships is something yeah. sometimes we forget and we discount. And that like having those relationships and being able to ask, again, one of the basic advocacy techniques that we teach is this idea of a cup of coffee, right? Asking your legislator to come meet you for a cup of coffee. I could yeah. see that it is even more powerful to the person who makes that cup of coffee asking for that ask because they know them. They have that relationship. But then then it's also being ready to make the ask and then being ready for what is the next step of what happens when you get a yes. Often yes. what times we find with advocates is they're, they're more prepared for a no than they are prepared for to run into the legislator, run into the U.S. senator and say, hey, here's what I need. And the senator says, sure, I'll do that. And then they freeze because <laughs> they don't know what to do when they get that. Yes. So getting ready for that is so powerful and important. One of my favorite examples, like chefs and restaurants have spaces that people walk into on the corner of every community. One of my favorite examples of that is Chef Joy Crump. She's a top chef alum, a black woman chef. She has a place called Foodie, which is in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And her congressman, he's a Republican, Representative Whitaker from the first district in Virginia, is a frequent guest as his his team. And Joy is a huge advocate of reducing hunger. She works with Share Our Strength, another organization. She's a huge advocate of community farming. And in the middle of the SNAP debate, the fight to reduce the supplemental nutrition funding, he came into the restaurant and Joy was like, what do I do? She went up to his table and she was like, introduced herself, thanked him for his, you know, he and his team's patronage of the restaurant, all those things, and simply invited him to join her to visit a community farm in the area. It's like, you know, I'd really like to take you and introduce you to some of the folks that produce the food that's on the plate. And through that initial introduction, right, she didn't like preach to him, she didn't interrupt his dinner, but he walked into her space she then used that as an opportunity to say, hey, I'm going to build this relationship with you. And over the course of a year, and they are still in correspondence, she is slowly but surely moving him, not necessarily away from reducing SNAP benefits, but having a greater appreciation for the, the things that they need. And he was quite instrumental in crafting some legislation that that Joy felt comfortable with that supports more community farming and, and moves in that direction. So it starts with that. And so I do think that chefs are uniquely placed with that. Like all of us as advocates, we don't think about what's going to happen if we 
get seated next to the U.S. senator on the plane or run into them at the grocery store, right? Like the chefs have that moment that they can do that. So it's I always love that. Since not everyone listening to this podcast necessarily has a restaurant, but they may, yes. have, <laughs> may have a classroom or they may have a like store or a they yep. may just be a constituent, right? So let's take this to a different place, which is if you do want to develop that relationship, what are some of the ways that you could do that to make that relationship and that connection? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I think, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot in the training is that we actually have to see politicians as people. And so I think especially in this fractured time where we have a lot of opinions about a lot of things, right? And we all have things that we'd like to see people do. And we're also at this really heightened space of sort of political discourse. But we do have to remember that politicians are people. And part of our job as advocates is to create the conditions for them by which a policy shift or a policy stance makes sense, right? And it's not always possible. Like I, there are, I will be honest, there's about 10% of the US Congress that I've completely written off to rational thinking. <laughs> but how we as individuals and how we as teachers or doctors or you know construction workers or others who have opinions about issues, it first helps to center the audience in which we're want to talk to. It helps to tell a personal story, right, about why this impacts us. It helps to ask questions and be an active listener of what you're hearing back. It's not our job to debate or quote unquote, change someone's mind immediately. It is a literally about creating that conversation, that relationship and the conditions by which change makes sense to them. And that's really hard. Like I didn't believe that when I was 20 and or 30 or 40. And I often don't believe that today. And when confronted with issues that I really care about, I can sometimes let the passion overtake my job as an advocate. And my job as an advocate, again, is to be an active listener, center the audience in which I'm trying to communicate, tell a compelling story, and create a condition by which they are open to change. Yes. I mean, absolutely. Right. <laughs> but I get that. And it's one hard to teach. And it is hard going back to the example of the chef where it's like, hey, there probably is an initial reaction where you just want to walk up to the table and say, we disagree on this issue. You need to change versus starting where they are and saying, can I take you on this journey and show you this farm? Can I just show you what's going on here? I always think about advocacy in this way, right? Advocacy is like taking a walk with my entire family in the forest, right? <laughs> I say that because the young kids are going to run ahead. They're going to trip on every rock. They're going to stub their toe. They're going to run ahead and they're going to get there in a different path. But someone's got to bring my grandma along. And helping my grandmother is helping her avoid the stump, like making sure she doesn't fall. And then there's all the people in the middle. And they're kind of confused. They're not sure if they should be walking with grandma, not sure if they should be running ahead. And advocacy is just like that. We need the protesters and the media and all the folks who can shine on it and start moving faster ahead. 
but someone's got to bring grandma along, (laughs) right? And someone's got to help the middle part of my family, all my crazy cousins who can't move in the same direction, figure out their path too. There are roles for all different forms of advocacy, but I always come back to what I think was so great about the chef is I sometimes think of the chef in the middle of that sort of messy food system, right? They source from folks, they sell to folks, they have to communicate with the staff. So they're constantly trying to figure out how they move that larger group forward. And that takes a lot of balance. And again, I think it goes back to framing and giving people tools. The thing I love about the AS for Advocacy framework is that anybody can adopt it right? We all have to think about who our audience is. We all have to think about what we want from them. We all have to think about how it translates for them. And and that frame is pretty, is pretty basic. I'm a huge believer that every individual has the power to make change in this world, but whether as an individual or part of a collective. And so my hope is that you see some of that in the frame, but my hope is that we also all understand that we're on that walk through the forest together and we'll all get there. <laughs> Just different people might get there in different paces. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, that analogy is so, there's so many things, right? Because I find when I'm trying to help work with a coalition or work with a individual advocate that there are so many, let's say, distractions in the forest, right? There are some people that are on the path. There are some people that are off the path. There are some people that are picking up the acorns. There are some people that are climbing the tree, right? You have to keep people moving in the direction that you want them to go. And sometimes that can can be challenging, right? And trying to also understand that people are going to have different priorities of things that they want to do. Some folks are just trying to walk along. Some people are trying to get their cardio in. There's lots of different (laughs) things that folks are trying to get on that walk. And we find that that these days is very hard in advocacy and that trying to understand that, you know, although people might be working on a same similar set of issues, they might have a very different priority that they're trying to get through. I do this thing in every training that I do, which is that we started off with like, okay, does everyone in this room believe that children should not go hungry? Please raise your hand if you do not think that children should go hungry, right? Every single person in the room raises their hand. The more specific we get about the ways to prevent childhood hunger, the more hands go down. That's because we all have a different prescription. Part of the ideal for advocacy is how we help people achieve a common goal. With a lot of the work that I do with advocacy, getting to that ultimate aspirational goal, not the measurable objectives and milestones, but the big picture, right? Spending the time on visioning and what is the world that we want to see and what's the thing that we want to do is some of the most important work that we can do as campaign builders, because then we can formulate milestones, right? Then we can figure out what the measurable objectives are for the benefit of our funders, right? Then we can figure out how to plug the people who are at different stages of that goal in and where they belong. Then you can create a plan. There's no plan without a goal. And goals for me are aspirational, big picture. What's the world that we want to see? Goals are not measurable objectives, 
that's so part of talk the plan. a little bit about sort of where you start. If someone is listening to this podcast today, they want to make change in their community, they have something that they want to work on. How do you get started? <laughs> I think you just get started, right? My career sort of in three pieces, right? I spent the first third of my career working largely in democratic and progressive policy and campaigns. So a couple of presidentials, organized labor. I was the research opposition research director at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Like that's where, you know, I was bitten by this bug and could see a career path related to campaigns and organizing. I took all those skills into both the corporate world and the large-scale foundation work. So I spent a nut the second third of my career developing large-scale campaigns and initiatives that either centered on fundraising, policy change, or literal social change within sort of the investment community, for example. And then I became a consultant. And what I love doing most is educating and training and empowering other people to become advocates. So I've spent the last third of my career traveling around the world, China, Lebanon, Nigeria, Mali, Australia, and then working with the chef and food community, chefs, farmers, restaurateurs, to become more effective advocates for the issues that they care about. And that's the stuff that I feel is, is most important to me. How does anybody get started? We get started on being an advocate by voting. So register to vote. Sure. <laughs> right? like that's literally the first step. And then go vote. <laughs> but if it's an issue that you're really passionate about, so I spent a lot of my personal advocacy work is based in ending sexual violence and within our lifetime and focused on gender equity and parity. So I spent a lot of time getting really up to speed on those issues following the organizations that are focused on them, learning more about the causes, figuring out which politicians are aligned with my take on that work. I'm likely to never support a politician who says that women should put a piece of aspirin between their legs in order to prevent rape. I'm more likely to support a politician who wants to firmly prosecute sexual assault perpetrators. That's the stuff that I care about. And then for me, finding ways to be an advocate. And I think that's the other piece for folks, which is you can use your voice by exercising your dollars. So be, being a funder and supporting financially supporting the people and organizations that you care about. You can be an advocate by publicly proclaiming, whether it's a post on your Instagram or whether it's writing an op-ed to the New York Times, right? Or becoming a professional advocate yourself by being that public voice. And, you know, you can become an advocate by being more closely aligned with the organizations that are focused on the issues that you care about. You know, one last anecdote I'll tell you is about chefs. So one of the things that we started very early on, that I started doing very early on, was chefs are asked to do everything. They're asked to donate food to the softball team and cook at a fundraiser and donate a gift certificate and a cookbook. And I audited about a hundred different restaurants and their giving patterns. And it was essentially about $50,000 on average that these chefs and restaurant businesses were donating. But it wasn't $50,000 to one cause. It was $50,000 over the course of a year to probably a hundred different organizations within their community. That doesn't make them an important donor or partner. My own personal lesson for that is now every year my husband and I sit down and we add up all the $5 donations, the $15 donations, the t-shirts, the employee giving, 
And we literally give to two causes a year. And it's not because we don't care about the other things, but there's something powerful in one being able to say no, because you're focusing your advocacy. Mm-hmm. And really the true power in saying yes and becoming an important donor, supporter, voice for the cause that you care about. If you can hone your focus, it will mean so much more. So I would say register to vote and vote. Two, hone your focus. Three, get informed on those issues and then figure out the different ways that you can use your voice and advocate for the cause that you care most about. Amazing. Yeah, no, as an employer, we do a ton of work around matching our employees giving, right? I think that we have found to be super powerful to like understand what the priorities of our employees are and try and help amplify what they care about. And that can be super powerful. And I think as you want to have a connection and engage in your community, making sure you're reaching out to your greater network to let them know that this is your priority is incredibly powerful. Yeah. So here in Washington, D.C., where I live, you know, Chef Aaron Silverman has a series of restaurants. One's called Rose's Luxury. And what I love about Aaron is that if you send him a note and you say, hey, can I get a donation to my charity of X, he will literally email back and say, I am sorry, our priority for this year is the World Food Program. All of our donations are going to that. We really appreciate your interest and we welcome you to come into any of our restaurants at any time. So he has a essentially a script, right, to be able to say no. And in saying no, he tells the asker exactly what his priority is. Yep. I just think there's just such power in that for folks. So yeah, 100%. All right. So one, asking for a friend, if you like were like writing a book on an advocacy, how long does that take? How hard was that? Just curious. Just curious. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I would say that the publishing process is completely opaque. My book at the table, The Chef's Guide to Advocacy is being published by Island Press, which is a nonprofit publisher, some different constraints than others. But it was a three-year from day one to end of process. Everything from like selling of the book to the delivery of the book was about three years. It's pretty hard. Anybody who tells you that you should write every day is absolutely correct. (laughs) It's really hard to find that focus, even with something that you know really well. I think one of the things that was interesting for me was because I had done this work and really this is a codification of the work and I had lived it, I actually found it really difficult to succinctly tell the stories. And, you know, I love it so much that I could talk about it for hours as clear here. And so like that really honing the message and the audience and writing a book's no different, right? Like the number one question the publisher kept asking me is like, who's your audience? Who are you writing this book for? And what do you want them to do? And I was like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) So Do you have a favorite book, podcast, movie on advocacy that inspired you around this this book? Oh, my gosh. That's such a great question. I mean, I read a lot of different books, maybe not advocacy books. I read a number of books on communication. So I think it's called Escape from the Ivory Tower, which is around communicating succinctly relating to scientific issues, which is very similar to food. I'm a big fan of Alicia Kennedy from a food perspective. She's a writer, podcaster, blogger, and a different and refreshing voice within the food world. And so her take on things was really helpful. I asked that 
question a lot, obviously. And so getting different people's perspectives, especially like some of the the food stuff we haven't had before. So that's amazing. So I have to ask this question. You know a lot about food. And of course, I am someone who likes to eat food. Do you have a favorite bite of food in Washington, D.C. that you like? Oh, yes. The thing that I will drive across town for in Washington, D.C. is the Labneh stuffed croissant from Yellow by Chef Michael Rafiti. It's the perfect bite because I love a good croissant. Labneh, this like strained yogurt yumminess, and then it's coated with za'atar seasoning, and it's savory and crispy and crunchy. Michael is also amazing because like all good chefs, he serves up a healthy dose of politics with every bite he offers. So he's well known in the community for combining chefs from Syrian and Lebanese and Israeli and Palestinian backgrounds to cook together and form community. So I will drive across town for that croissant. Sounds pretty good. I'm pretty hungry now. <laughs> well, Catherine, thank you so much for the time. If folks want to get a hold of you and also want to buy the book, one, how do they get a hold of you and how do they get the book? The book at the table, The Chef's Guide to Advocacy is out from Island Press. You can buy it through Island Press or your favorite independent bookseller here in Washington, D.C. There is a Bold Fork Books in Mount Pleasant. I would encourage people to buy through them. Cool. If you're in Seattle, like your friends, Book Larder in Seattle is another great, but either from Island Press or from an independent bookseller is is my preference. Table 81 is my Instagram, my Twitter, my threads handle, and uh, my website is table81.com. So come and find me. Will do. All right. Well, thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. How to win a campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Elizabeth Rowe, Phoebe Retta, Samantha Sondek, and Lauren Odom. Music by Danielle Pinto. Audio editing by Christopher Lang. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.